especially. A special welcome to my mom and dad and my little sister Kayla. We're especially happy that you're here with us. Uh, today starts our Advent series. Uh, I don't know if most of you remember we did this. We did this last last uh, year or two, leading up to Christmas. And I thought as I was studying for this message, well, I wonder how many of us know what the Advent is or means. And then I thought, well, I wonder if I do. And so I knew it's the anticipation of, uh, we're looking at forward to the second coming of Christ. But I did a little research. And I don't know if you're a history buff, but in case you're not, I'm going to give us a short history lesson on the Advent. Like, where does it come from? Here we go, the history of Advent. The word Advent is derived from the Latin word Adventus, meaning coming, which is a translation of a Greek word. Most know Advent today as a time of anticipation and expectation of the birth of Christ. However, Advent began as early as the 4th and 5th centuries as a time of fasting and prayer for new Christians. The first mention of Advent occurred in the 300s A.D. I want us to think in a little bit of how long ago that was. 300 A.D. at a meeting of church leaders. It gradually developed into a season that stretched across the month of December. Advent lasts four Sundays leading up to Christmas. The Advent season not only symbolizes the waiting for Christ's birth, but also for his final return. So the Advent is a tradition, really, an observance that was first observed over 1,700 years ago. Okay, that's a long time. In fact, I did the math, and that's 68 generations. Okay, that's you, your dad, your grandpa, your great-grandpa, plus 64. That's a long time ago. For instance, we observe Thanksgiving, or we celebrated Thanksgiving uh, just this week. Thanksgiving is less than 400 years old to the very first Thanksgiving uh, with the pilgrims. And that's, that was only 16 generations ago. So Advent is much, much older than Thanksgiving. And I found it interesting. Do you know what the reason is that they started observing this or observing the Advent? 1,700 years ago, they expected Jesus to return really soon. Think of that. Now, I can guarantee you one thing, and that is we're much closer now to Jesus returning than they were then. And really, if I'd sum it up, the reason we observe the Advent, well, it's in part a celebration that Christ has come. Um, And it's in part a reminder that we expect him to come again. And it could be really soon. In fact, we're called to live as if we're almost certain it'll be really soon. 
Advent is celebrated all over the world. While traditions vary by country, the most common Advent observance involves four candles, the wreath. Now, we don't have those candles here. Um, but a new candle is lit on each of the four Sundays before Christmas. So there's four candles, and they each represent something different. And I'm going to go through here. The first candle symbolizes hope, and it's called the prophet's candle. That's today's message. It will be on hope. The prophets of the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, waited in hope for the Messiah's arrival. Okay, the second candle represents faith and is called Bethlehem's candle. That'll be next Sunday. Micah had foretold that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, which is also the birthplace of King David. The third candle symbolizes joy and is called the shepherd's candle. To the shepherd's great joy, the angels announced that Jesus came for humble, unimportant people like them. The fourth candle represents peace and is called the angel's candle. The angels announced that Jesus came to bring peace. He came to bring, bring peace, people close to God and to each other. Again. So there's a little history lesson. That one's free. We'll throw that one in with today. Uh, but today's message is on hope. The first candle, the candle of hope. And really the point of my message is um, a simple one. I just like to remind us that as believers, our hope is in God. And it's not such a simple thing. You know, on its face, you say, well, of course it is. I learned that in preschool. But, okay, so... Okay, are we back? This will work. Okay, we said we all know, we've known for a long time that as believers our hope is in God. And then the question might be, well, how does it manifest itself in your life? Okay, like how will this hope impact tomorrow or my day tomorrow or next week? And it's not such an easy question to answer, you know, and it's in part because it depends on what you mean by hope. Like, hope can mean different things. It can be used different ways, okay? It can be used as a verb, or it can be used as a noun. I can give you an example. Hope used as a verb would be, I hope the Browns beat Jacksonville today. And they should, but Jacksonville's really bad. Um, but there it's used as a verb. It's, it's used as an action, I hope. Okay? Here's another example of hope as a verb. I hope I go to heaven when I die. And that's a good thing to hope. But there's a lot more to hope than that. There, again, it's used as an action. It's... It's a verb. Now, you, excuse me, used as a noun. Here's an example of hope used as a noun. My hope is in you, Lord. You see the difference there? 
And that's what David says in the scripture that we'll be looking at today. But there it's used as a noun or as a thing. So my hope is in you. It's a thing. And that's how I'd like to look at hope today as a noun, as a something. Not something you do. But hope is something that we all need. In fact, I think we were designed with the need to hope in something. Okay? And how you might know this is true is if you lose all hope, that's as bad as it gets. Okay? When someone loses all hope, you know, that's why, that's why people take their own lives. See, there's, to lose all hope, it means there's nothing beyond right now that's worth living for. Like, there's nothing, there's nothing worthwhile in the future to strive towards. So hope can be lost and found. But if you lose all of it, you're done. But it's, it's something that we all have. And we get to choose where we put it. Now, you might put your hope in all sorts of things. For instance, you could put your hope in money. Or you could put your hope in knowledge. You put your home in hope in fame or government. You could even put it in your own ability. The problem with all of these things is they're uncertain. Okay? I'm not saying it's bad to be rich. I'm not saying it's bad to be smart. I'm not saying it's bad to be famous or freedom loving. It's not bad to be able. I'm saying these are no places, this, this is not, these are not good places to place your hope. Because they're here today and they can be gone tomorrow. They're unstable. You're much better off putting your hope in something more secure. Something that doesn't change would be ideal. And in a world where everything around us is constantly changing. And it's been changing all through time. Okay, kingdoms have come, kingdoms have gone. Everything we can see changes. But through all this time, there's one thing that hasn't changed. That's God is still God, and the ironic thing is, it's the one thing we can't see. How about that? Everything we see changes. And God is something we can't see. And that's the one that doesn't change. And God would seem like a reasonable place to put your hope. The one thing that doesn't change that can't change. Let's see where the psalmist puts his hope. So I'd like to look at today's scripture. 
Uh, this is Psalm chapter 37. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. And what I came across is kind of like a funeral psalm. But that's the beauty of Scripture. Like, we can, we can get different things out of the same Scripture. So while, while some of this is a little bit dreary and a little bit dark, there's hope here too. Okay, let's read through Psalm chapter 39. I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read through once and then we'll slow down um, and dig into it a little bit. David says, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. So long as the wicked are in my presence, I was mute and silent. I held my peace at no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made me... You have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Now, I don't know exactly what David has going on here. So I'm going to speculate a little bit in this next part. Um, But he couldn't have been at a great place. And how you might know this is at the end of verse verse 1, he says there are wicked people close. They're certainly within hearing distance. Now, if we look back a chapter or two, let's, I'm going to go back to chapter 37. David talks about wicked people. So it seems they were prevalent. They were, they were around David now. And just listen to a couple of things that he says about the wicked. Chapter 37, verse 1, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for soon they will fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Okay, verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. Verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. And verse 20, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. So there seems to be some wicked around. But David says, you know what? Don't worry about the wicked. Their day is coming. He says, soon they'll fade like the grass. They'll disappear. He says, soon they'll vanish like smoke. So that's what David said you should do. Let's look at what David does. Because those are, those are two, two entirely different things. And sometimes it's not so easy to do what we say. But here's what David does. Now, I'm going to break this down a little bit. I, I, I'd like to just look at the first part of, of 
uh, chapter 39, verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. It's like, okay, he's saying, I'm going to guard my mouth so I don't say something that I shouldn't. And that seems like good advice. Like That's what you would tell someone to do. Then he goes further, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as these wicked are in my presence. So he goes further and he says, I'll guard my mouth with a muzzle. Like he's making a statement here. Do you know what a muzzle is used for? It's what you put on an unruly dog. Okay. So this shows a level of commitment, and he's saying, I'm seriously not going to say a word, not one word, as long as the wicked are in my presence. Verse 2, I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. So how's this going? He says, okay, I didn't say a word, but to no avail, it didn't work. The wicked are still here. Things aren't going the way I think they should. And it keeps getting worse and worse. See, I think the wicked weren't disappearing like they were supposed to. I, I think they weren't fading like the grass. I think they weren't vanishing like smoke. In fact, maybe it looked like they were beginning to prosper. I think David's at a place where he says, God, I'm seriously trying to do the right thing here. But from my perspective, things are not going as they ought. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever thought, you know, things are really not going the way that I think God should have them go right now? I've thought that. Verse 3, my heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned and then I spoke with my tongue. So David's at a point where he can't take it anymore. He's absolutely at the end of himself. And so he finally talks. And we could debate whether this was the, the, a good approach of David to hold his silence and to not say anything. Um, I'd like to not focus on that, but to focus on where is David in life? And he's at a pretty desperate place. As I mused, the fire burned. He's pretty worked up by now. And let's look at what he says over the next three verses. And this is, this is kind of depressing because it really hones in on man's mortality. Okay, but it's also kind of awe-inspiring because it, in some way it paints a picture of how big God is. 
So let's look at what he says. O Lord, verse 4, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Now, I don't think he's saying here, Lord, reveal to me when I'm going to die. I think he's saying something like, Lord, make me sensible about the shortness and uncertainty of life. Verses 5 and 6. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. Do you know how much a handbreadth is? It's like this. Here to here. That's not very much. The grand scheme of things. That's a big God. Let me know how fleeting I am. Fleeting? That's not very long. It's a big God. My lifetime is as nothing before you. This keeps getting worse. Now he says my lifetime is as nothing. It went from a hand breaths to nothing. And he says, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. David seemed to be able to articulate his emotions particularly well, I think. But think of this. It says mankind stands as a mere breath. What's a breath like? When it's cold outside in the morning, you go out and you take a breath. It's there for a little bit, and then it's gone. David says all mankind is as a mere breath. That's a big God. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. What's a shadow? Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. This just keeps getting worse and worse. And honestly, I think it looks like maybe by now David could use a psychiatrist. No, but let's look at what he's saying. He's saying that even though things really aren't how they should be right now, the wicked are flourishing. My hope is in you, Lord. You know exactly what's going on. And I'll wait on you. And a closing in verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? See, hope requires waiting too. And that's not fun. But my hope is in you. Hope says that there's more to it than what I can see. And hope assumes that God is always up to something. So, thank you all for coming. Um, Let's bow our heads forward a prayer. On my Chris's, you guys have a song yet? Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that you're a big God and that you're the one constant you never change. Thank you for your promises. Lord, we put our hope in you. We trust in you. Amen.